to you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 810. Matthew chapter 5. This morning, we are so thankful for our visitors. Scouts, thanks for being here. Really appreciate you guys worshiping with us and glad that anybody else who's visiting with us, thank you so much uh, for being here. If you haven't already, if you are visiting with us, fill out one of those blue cards and uh, we'll collect those at a later time if we haven't already. It is good to come together and to worship God. We are glad that we were able to do that uh, this morning. Wanted to make sure that you know that, especially if you're visiting with us, we've got a series going on called The Way. And we are, as Christians, we are those belonging to the way. Jesus says that he is the way, and we really want to follow Jesus. And it's not always easy, and sometimes because it's not easy, we don't talk about it in specifics enough. But in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, large crowds are following him. He goes up on a mountain, and this phrase is said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the very end, his disciples came to him. And that's what we're doing this morning. And, and isn't, it, isn't it great that you can come to Jesus and you can learn about him and learn from him anytime you want to, because you have God's word and it's available to you. And, and so this afternoon you can do this. And in the middle of the night, you can wake up and read God's word. You can learn about what does God want me to know about following him anytime that you want. But certainly when we come to Bible class, when we come to worship, when we uh, together study God's word, we are not just coming but together to, uh, to worship, but we're sitting again, like they were in Matthew chapter five at the feet of Jesus. And we want to learn from him. And in Matthew chapter five and verse 27 and following, he's going to uh, continue as he has the last several weeks as we have walked through Matthew five uh, to really get into our, our everyday life. And to look at some things that uh, maybe not everybody, uh, but the majority of people in our culture and really the majority of people throughout time, they have experienced things like this. So he's showing us, hey, in specific instance, here's some things you need to know. Here's some ways you need to act. But let me remind you again uh, that before he goes into these specifics, he calls everyone there and he calls us here to a greater righteousness. And that greater righteousness is ultimately found in Christ, but there is a practical application and that's why he's going through these things. And today he's gonna be talking about the way marriage is supposed to be. Now I know not everybody here is married and I know everybody here's uh, experience with marriage is different. Uh, And and marriage uh, is not a a perfect thing. It is not an easy thing. Uh, It is something that lots of people struggle with. And there may be lots of questions about marriage that we are not going to talk about today. But what I want us to look at is the way, according to scripture, according to God, according to Jesus, as he is preaching these words in Matthew chapter five, the way marriage is supposed to be. And it starts out with, in the first several verses, starting in verse 27, a culture shock. Uh, A culture shock, not only It it is a culture shock to us today, but what I want us to recognize as we get into it here in a few minutes, it it was also a culture shock to to the Jewish community in the first century. Uh, And they are, they are, even his people who are following him, his disciples, perhaps even those who, who would become his apostles, they are completely shocked. That's the way marriage is supposed to be. They would really struggle with that. So we're, we're going to get there, but let's start in Matthew chapter five, verses 27 and 28. Again, he says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so they're starting out with talking about marriage. But again, he's raising the stakes in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, listen, we we haven't really started talking about marriage yet, but I don't want to gloss over what this is talking about. I don't want to gloss over this, this, uh, this warning that Jesus gives, not just about physical adultery, about being married and, and having sex with someone who's not your spouse. But he also says, well, what about lust? 
uh, having the intent of looking upon someone with lustful intentions. And it talks here specifically about men looking at women, but ladies, you recognize that it can happen the other direction too. And you'd be just as guilty. And he says, if you have purposely looked at someone with the intent of lusting after them, then you've committed adultery with them already in your heart. Okay, well, again, I don't, I don't want to take the time to, I want to take the time to make sure that we don't uh, gloss over that. Um, and, and let's remember that this, when Jesus wrote these words, he wrote these words to, to a place that, that didn't have smartphones. He wrote, wrote this into a culture that didn't have internet of any variety. He wrote this into a world where the TV did not exist. He wrote this into the world where, where not even the printing press existed. But he said, it's still possible. It's still possible for you to sin in this way to purposefully planning, look upon someone to lust for them, to have sexual desires and thoughts and, 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 and go through it in your mind about doing these things. But then you and I live in a world where the printing press does exist and television does exist and the Internet does exist. And we have computers at home. And, and in reality, we have everything we need in our hands. Most often, let me, let me suggest to you this morning that, that this sin of, of lust that, that I'll tie directly to the, the epidemic of pornography in the world today is something that is really something that we need to be greatly concerned about, greatly concerned about. It is a, it is an epidemic. It is a problem in the world and it is a problem in the church. Listen to some of these stats. And, and these are, these are not very new stats. I, I've read these stats before. They're probably five years old or so. Uh, as I was researching, I couldn't find any, any more comprehensive stats. So I'm going to share these older ones. Uh, but what I did learn was that the pandemic in 2020, when people were isolated at home and doing everything on the internet, probably made these numbers only worse. Okay. So think about these. And this, these are, these are church related and culture related. Okay. There are over 40 million Americans that regularly visit porn sites. There are around 42 million porn sites that total about 370 million pages of porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. It also is more than the revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, the three biggest television stations. 47% of families in the United States report that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography uses, pornography use increases marital, marital infidelity rates by more than 300%. 11, 11 is the average age a child is exposed to porn. 57%, 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth ministers report that they have at least one teen come to them for help in the last 12 months for pornography. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of ministers view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively participate or actively search for porn. 59% of ministers said that married men seek their help for the use of porn. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. 
Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they have never watched porn, which means 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of ministers say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. And only 7% of ministers say that churches have have a program to help people struggling with pornography. Pornography is an epidemic. It's a problem. And we would be foolish to think it's not a problem in our families, in our congregations, and in our lives. Does that make you uncomfortable? Me too. Does that make you uncomfortable? That's something that we don't want to talk about, we don't want to think about? Me too. But Jesus says, Jesus warns us as he's beginning this conversation on this, this really these, uh, this, this culture shock and this, this higher standard that he has. That listen, it's not just, uh, yes, we would all agree. I would think that we would all agree. And most people in our society would agree that, that adultery is, is a bad thing. But Jesus says, you're, you're right, it is. But I'm calling you to higher righteousness. Listen, even if you have those thoughts, even if you, and there's an intent, there's a purposefulness. It's not an accidental thing. Let me suggest to you that lust doesn't happen accidentally. Lust does not happen accidentally, okay? It's a purposeful thing that that is something that that God will hold us accountable for in the same way that he would hold us accountable for adultery. And then he gets into this culture shock, this specific culture shock when you think about uh, the the standard that God has for marriage versus the standard that that the world has for marriage. And that standard of the world has worked its way certainly uh, into the church. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here in the sermon, amount there's no back and forth there's no opportunity it's kind of like right now like if you stand up and start talking right now it's going to be a little awkward i mean if you need to we'll we'll handle it but uh, but it'd be a little awkward right that's not what you do in sermons most of the time and jesus is preaching there and there's not the opportunity for someone to say hey let me ask you a question jesus what do you mean by that but if you skip over later in matthew chapter 19 matthew chapter 19 there is this opportunity matthew 19 on page 824 in your pew bibles uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is, is asked a question about this same topic. And, and where he learned here that it really is, it's, it's something that, that the Jews struggle with and that even Jesus' disciples struggle with. So there's no surprise that when we say things like this, when we simply repeat what God says, what Jesus says is his standard for marriage, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Even a lot of church going folks the wrong way. But remember, I'm not following the world. I'm not following you. I'm following Jesus and I want to follow the way. And he's telling me the way. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse two, large crowds are following Jesus. He heals them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. Okay, well, let's notice this. Why are they using the topic of of marriage and adultery to test Jesus? Because it's confrontational. It's been confrontational for 2000 years and probably even before then. It's a confrontational topic that a lot of people have strong feelings about. And so they're testing him, hoping he'll say something that will drive people away from Jesus and back to them into their arms of the things that they would say. And, it, and they said to him in verse, the end of verse three, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, Jesus answered and said, have you not read he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where does Jesus go? He doesn't go to the law of Moses. He goes to the very beginning. He says, look, 
In the very beginning, God created the male and female and what God has joined together. Uh, don't let any man separate. He says this was the plan from the beginning. This was God's standard. Verse six. Uh, so they are no longer, no, no longer two flesh, two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, as we said, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, that's the exact same thing that we read in Matthew chapter five. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. It was not God's plan for divorce to be something that just happened flippantly. Now, God has, Jesus has already given us a reason for a, for a marriage to end. If there's adultery, uh, then the, the innocent person uh, is free to, uh, to divorce their spouse and to be remarried and, and all of the things. And again, that's where things get complicated. And we're not going to dig into that, to that today. But, but from the beginning, what was the plan? Let me suggest to you a very simple thing that's not hard to understand, though it is difficult to implement because there's a lot of feelings and there's a lot of facts of, of situations that are going on. God's plan for marriage. Is one man and one woman for life. That's God's plan. From day one of creation to day six of creation, when he created Adam and Eve and joined them together, that is God's plan for marriage. That's what he wants. That's what he hopes. And we've made it more difficult, certainly. Verse number nine. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. And then here's the culture shock. The disciples, not the Pharisees who are coming to, uh, to him to test him and to try him and to make him, uh, you know, trick him into saying something that will drive people away. But in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to get married. They say, if that's the way it is, then, then we sh- shouldn't get married at all. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, Jesus doesn't back down. He said, well, you know, okay, well, you're right. It's kind of tough. So maybe we could be a little more lenient. What's Jesus say? What's Jesus say in verse number, number 11? But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. In essence, he says, you're right. You're right. Marriage is tough. Marriage isn't easy. Marriage, in essence, so you know what he's saying? Marriage is a big commitment. Don't forget that. Don't lose that. Let's recognize the fact that marriage is that big commitment. So, so what do we learn? What, is, what does this scripture tell us? Uh, what, God, what God has joined, don't try to separate. From the beginning, God's plan for marriage, one man, one woman together for life. And they say it's better not to marry. It's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's a culture shock. Uh, for them. Let's notice uh, in verses 29 and 30, uh, some shocking statements that are right in between this, right in between the, hey, lust is bad. Make sure you avoid lust if at all possible, because it's equal to adultery. Uh, and this, this standard of marriage that Jesus teaches back in Matthew chapter five in verses 29 and 30, he says something that seemingly isn't related. And it is certainly, it is certainly shocking, but let's see if we can make a connection. Verse number 29. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a a shocking statement. That's, That's a radical statement. You know, pluck your eye out if it makes you sin. Cut your hand off. If it makes you sin. Now we, we could, we could debate and we could have conversation about what did Jesus literally mean this? Did Jesus literally mean that we should pluck our eyes out and cut our hands off? Probably not, but is what he said literally true? 
Would it be better for you to, to lose an eye if that somehow helped you to be faithful to God and you got to go to heaven rather than having both eyes throughout your whole life and, and, and that leading you to sin and temptation and falling away from Jesus and you going to hell? Would it be better? Yeah, it'd be better. Would it be better to cut off your hand and if that meant in some form or fashion it, it helped you uh, follow Jesus better and, and get to heaven? Yeah, that, that would be a better thing. But he, he's not really, I don't think he's really emphasizing that. What he's really saying here is, listen, if you can't handle the heat of marriage, if you can't handle the difficulty, the trial, the, the sacrifice, all of the things that it takes to be married, then stay out of the kitchen. Then don't get married. If, if you can't commit to your spouse, the person you want to be your spouse, then you have no business getting married. And again, what is Jesus calling us to here? Greater righteousness. So while we learn these things, and these are important lessons for us to know and and standards that Jesus is teaching us about marriage, what's he really talking about? He's really talking about, listen, if you can't commit your life to me and be my follower, then don't claim to be. If you're not really gonna follow me and do the things that I say and live the way that I live and follow in my footsteps, don't act like you're going to. Either do it or don't. If you can't stand the sacrifice, if you can't stand all the things that it goes with, then don't act like you're going to. Be who you say you're going to be. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 30, 32, we have this mysterious standard. Ephesians 5, 22 through 32, if you want to turn over there. Again, this is a passage that we often talk about when we think about marriage. And there's lots of things here. What, what's marriage supposed to be like? First of all, Maybe most importantly, uh, maybe even more importantly than the, the specifics is marriage is supposed to be a commitment. You are committing yourselves to your spouse forever, okay? And there, again, there are situations and circumstances and one or two exceptions given in Scripture where, where that is okay to change. But generally, God's plan for marriage, the purpose of marriage is one man, woman, and together for life. What's that marriage supposed to look like? In Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 and following, it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their own husbands and everything. Again, this is God's plan. It is not popular in our culture today. It makes us uncomfortable sometimes, but God's plan is for the wife to be in subjection to her husband. And he takes it back to not that's the way that Paul thinks who's writing this, or even that's the way that Jesus says, but God is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife. It's God's plan for marriage, God's plan for the family even. But, but wives, that's difficult. I have no doubt about it. I have no doubt about it. It's difficult to be subject to your husbands because I, I'm a husband and I know how big of a buffoon I can be sometimes. I get it, okay? I understand, totally. But I, I might dare say that the standard that's given to the husband in the following verses is even more difficult. Husbands, what's our responsibility? Husbands, love your wives. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow, that's a pretty high standard. Jesus sacrificed everything, every day of his life and his very life for the sake of the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He sacrifices and works for her good. Husbands, that's our job to sacrifice every day and work for the good of our wife. 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands, our job is to help our wives be holy and blameless. What are you doing to help your wife be holy, holy and not, I mean, that's, that's set apart for God, holy and blameless. That means, man, she's awesome. She's, she's not just awesome in, in other ways. She's, she's awesome spiritually. And you have helped make that happen. Husbands, what have you done to help your wife in that way? So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. Husbands, when's the last time you nourished and cherished your wife, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, taking it back to the very beginning, not culture, not, uh, you know, thousands of years of history, but from the beginning, this is the way that it was supposed to be. And then in verse 32, we have this mysterious standard. The mis- this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Okay, so here he's, he's using Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19. And here Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about marriage because that's something that maybe not all of us are in and maybe not all of us understand. Listen, if you're not married, you don't understand it, all right? I'm not even sure all of us who are married understand it. But, but he's talking about something that we've experienced and we are experiencing. And because of that, we, we get all of the nuances of it and the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights and just everything that is involved in marriage. And then he says, listen, at the end of uh, what we just read in Ephesians chapter five, he says, listen, I'm, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm helping, I'm trying to help you understand the relationship that you as a Christian are supposed to have with Jesus. You see, marriage is wonderful, but it is not easy. Marriage is spectacular and it is trying. Love is a commitment. It's not just a feeling. And what Jesus is saying here, what Paul helps us to understand in Ephesians chapter five is as they're both calling us to to greater righteousness than the world around us, than anybody else's standard, but God's standard is, listen, just like marriage, Christianity, following Jesus is wonderful, but it is not easy. It's spectacular and it's trying. Loving Jesus is a commitment, not just a feeling. Feelings are involved and feelings should be involved in marriages and and in Christianity. Our our emotions should be a part of our, our worship and our following of Jesus, but it's got to be more than that. So when Jesus tells us these things and he's getting into our practical lives and, and trying to help us to, to understand what it, what it means to really be a follower of Jesus, he's relating it to things that, that we kind of understand, but he wants us to understand something more. We, we had the last Friday night and Saturday this, this weekend, we had a, a marriage seminar that uh, a number of us were able to go to and, and, uh, and they pr- approached marriage from a, a, a kind of a different perspective, okay? Uh, these, these folks, the, the Gearhearts, they're, they're storytellers. That's kind of what they do for a living. They, they're, they're writers and, and they're, they're podcasters and, and they, they, they tell stories and they do, they do an amazing job. And they presented uh, your marriage as a story. That your, your marriage is, is a story. And, and ultimately, unlike worldly marriages and world, the stories of worldly marriages, the, the, the marriages of the kingdom, the marriages of Christ, ultimately are reflections of the gospel because we're showing people how do you how do you love someone who's imperfect 
How do you deal with someone who, is, who struggles and who doesn't always treat you right? Isn't that not Christ and the church? How does Christ love us with all of our junk and all of our failures and all of our shortcomings? At the end of the, uh, the session, I believe, or at least at some point during the session, they said, okay, well, what kind of story is your marriage? What kind of story is your marriage? Some, some, of, us, uh, some of us men, we want it to be a, an action story, right? We want there to be lots of, lots of actions and, and pumped up and that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe uh, ladies want it to be a rom-com or, or something like that. What, what kind of story is your marriage? Ultimately, your marriage, every marriage, definitely every Christian marriage, it's a love story, right? Duh, it's a love story. But what happens in a love story? There, in every good story, there's always conflict. There's always issues. And what happens through that conflict and those issues? Growth. What happens at the end of every love story? Two people who are in love wind up together. Let me encourage you. It encouraged me and challenged me. Let me encourage you. If you are married, remember you're in a love story and that means you end up together. And maybe that'll help you understand that this thing that's really important to you right now well at the end of this story at the end of this conflict we're going to end up together because we're in a love story and in love stories people end up together so so whatever it is we're going to end up together and then we're going to work through it and maybe that'll lessen the seriousness of, of it because you already know the result you're going to end up together and let me encourage you as a christian your story with jesus the bible itself is a love story. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you are willing to commit your life to Christ, you know that he has already committed himself to you. And in the end, well, even before the end, there will be ups and there will be downs. There will be conflict. You will mess up. And you will fail You'll be unfaithful. God is always faithful. And in the end, if you follow him, you'll end up together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for marriage. Lord, we thank you for the picture that it gives to all of us, even if we're not married, of what your love for us is like, that we end up together. Lord, I pray that you will bless the marriage represented here this morning, those that are here all the time and our visitors with us, Lord. And I I pray that our our marriages are things that reflect the gospel of Jesus, that help us to show grace to one another and and growth and and commitment and support and and just all the things that that we need to be and and that we need in our marriages. God, I pray that you will bless them, Lord, and help us to do things that are right and acceptable to you wherever we may be in our marriage, God. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as Christians. And Lord, help us to realize that that following Jesus, we know this, God, it's not easy. But Lord, help us not forget it's wonderful. Lord, help us to, to know as, as we do that it's trying, Lord, but help us to remember that it's spectacular. It's the best thing there is to follow Jesus. Lord, as we do that and as we fail and we are imperfect, we pray that you'll forgive us and help us to have the courage to stand up and as you pick us up and to try again to follow after you, God. Lord, forgive us for our sins and thank you for your son. We pray these things in his name, amen. This morning, 
If you've got something you want to uh, let us know about, we're gonna have the opportunity here in just a second as Steve comes and leads us in a song uh, to let us know about that. And we just simply wanna pray for you. If you want us to pray for you, if you've got something going on in your life, we'd be happy to pray for you and come alongside you, not just in prayer, but in action and do what we can for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, scripture teaches us that if you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected son of God, if you'll name him as the Lord of your life and you'll submit to baptism into his blood where all of your sins are washed away, then you can rise up a new creature and you can follow Jesus in the way all the way to our eternal home with God. If you have any needs this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.